Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzerland. Today, I'm talking to a real legend of financial markets, Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital. Chris is, a, I think, a very smart guy. Part of the reason why he manages my uh, Switzer Higher Yield Fund, which is basically a bond fund. Um, and as I say, I've been very impressed with Chris Joy over the years. We've had lots of arguments and disagreements on my television show uh, over the past decade, but he is someone who I am happy to listen to, particularly when he's got insights that other people haven't got. Today, I, I, I do with the backstory on, on Chris Joy. You know, where's he come from? You know, how did he end up being so smart? And more importantly, I get him to look at what's this Delta strain going to do for financial markets and the economy going forward. So without any further ado, let's welcome Chris Joy to the Learning From Legends program. Welcome to the program, Chris. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me, mate. Okay. Before I start getting you to make predictions about really important matters to uh, the economy, to markets, and to the way we invest, let's just position Chris Joy because, like, you kind of you've arrived on the scene as a bit of a cyclone, if you like, cyclone Joy. Um, and you know, but some people wouldn't know what's your background. So, how did you end up getting in the the, the space where you've got a column in the Financial Review, you've got a, a very significant uh, bond um, uh, and investing business. What's the 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 backstory of Chris Joy? <laughs> it's a bit of a long story, mate. Um, I'll, I'll shorten it when when necessary, but go for it. Yeah, sure. So I I guess uh, studied at school in New South Wales and Victoria. And in England, uh, went to Sydney University, was pretty passionate about my economics, was lucky enough to win the university medal at Sydney Uni in economics and finance. And then I got recruited by Malcolm Turnbull into Goldman Sachs. So started working at Goldman in m and in London and Sydney. Then I studied for a PhD at Cambridge University. I didn't actually complete that whilst I was at Cambridge. I set up a, a quantitative investment business uh, that I ended up selling to Macquarie Bank. Um, between Goldman and Cambridge, <clears throat> I did a very short stint at the RBA and um, also wrote a report on housing for Prime Minister John Howard. Uh, Turnbull put me on the Menzies Research Centre think tank board as well during that time. And then I set up Coolabar Capital in 2011. Uh, today we run about $7.2 billion, uh, focusing on fixed income. I've always been super interested in, I guess, economics, ideas uh, and policy solutions. Started writing for newspapers in, I guess, my mid-20s, mid to early 20s. Originally, it was letters to the editor back in the day mm. and then occasionally some op-eds. Uh, and I did that more and more. And I've been writing for the AFR, <clears throat> I think, for almost 10 years now. And, um, yeah, it's a kind of it's a great platform to engage in that uh, contest of ideas, to put my view out there and... Um, to try and, I guess, 
illuminate folks as to what we're thinking at any given point in time. Yeah, Chris, you also at one stage, if I recall, you were trying to do something involving creating an index for house prices or something. Is that something? Yeah, so we actually did, mate. Um, so we built these, uh, they're called hedonic house price indices um, uh, in that quantitative investment business I referred to. We built uh, models that revalue every home in Australia every day and also models that created daily house price indices. And we sold that intellectual property to CoreLogic or RP Data, as it was once known. Mm. And they now use those. So when you measure or when you read about house prices rising and falling, most of the time that's uh, in CoreLogic's data. They're the premier provider. They're the provider the RBA relies on. And those uh, house price indices were built by my business. Okay. So let's just try and get an understanding on, you know, obviously you, you, you've never had an interest. Well, you might have, but you don't have an interest in, in purely being an economist. You, you, you seem to want to be able to use the insights that you're getting from your economics training and your understanding of financial markets to, to actually um, create businesses or that can actually make money. But at the same time, you, you're really uh, keen to, to make sure that your points of view are, are really important to the, the policy decisions of both Treasury and the Reserve Bank. Is that a fair, fair observation of what you do? Yeah, mate, I think during my uh, 20s and early 30s, the focus for me was making an intellectual impact and, you know, trying to, I used to uh, think about how ephemeral and transitory life is. You know, the tides of time, they keep on rolling on, but we are um, only here for a very short period of time. And I think it's important to try and contribute a positive and constructive legacy. I thought I could do that intellectually and in the policy domain. So I did quite a lot of public policy work uh, for uh, initially John Howard, but so that was the, I wrote a 380 page report on the Aussie housing market that ultimately led to us developing those house price indices during the global financial crisis, I came up with a, an idea for the government to provide liquidity to the <clears throat> securitized home loan market, and they invested $15 billion into that idea, which really saved many smaller banks and non-bank lenders. Um, and, you know, a few years back, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, asked me how to reduce the cost of small business borrowing, and I suggested the government invest in securitized SME loans. And he put $2 billion behind that idea, which has been, I think, quite formative in helping develop a securitization market for small business loans. Mm -hmm. So I think during my 20s and early 30s, it was all about um, trying to contribute positively to the public debate and make my life meaningful in that context. I think when I transitioned into my early 30s, focus changed i started um i guess focusing more on financial survivability i mean to be totally frank i grew up in a pretty privileged family but um my father's had nine kids 
and <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not in his will. So um, he uh, uh, somebody asked me the other day. Um, you know, oh, they made the point. Well, you must have um, your, your your life must be uh, you know very privileged today because of your father and. My dad gave me uh, amazing opportunities and I did have an incredibly privileged upbringing, but he's also pretty ruthless and he made it clear at a given point in my life that, you know, he would leave me with nothing. So that was a a little sobering, um, perhaps uh, a little later in life, and that's why I focused on financial survivability. So, you know, it's funny, you would know maybe because we, we both live in a similar area, you've got a son who's a similar age, but and you've been very successful, Peter. And often I think the children of successful families can lack the motivation and incentive to really strive to produce exceptional outcomes. And I think often the entrepreneurs that you see at any point in time, sometimes, like you know, Mike Cannon-Brooks is a good example. You know, his, his father was obviously quite successful. He went to Cranbrook. But if you look at Scott Fuqua, you know, he, he was at a public school, um, to the best of my knowledge, mm. and perhaps didn't have the same opportunities. And I think many, op- many entrepreneurs are motivated by adversity. Uh, they're motivated by the desire to create a much better set of financial uh, outcomes for themselves and their families. Uh, and when you're cocooned in that world of privilege, you know, you, you've got that moral hazard. You're kind of too big to fail. You are always going to be bailed out by the, the bank of mum and dad. And that's why I think so many of my um, peers at, at private schools, you know, I saw time and time again, and you would know this, I'm sure, from first-hand experience, Peter, that they, they, many of the talented guys fall by the wayside. Mm. They didn't succeed. And so I think that um, for me that galvanising focus on financial independence really um, started to crystallise in my late 20s and early 30s. And that's why I set up my current business, Coolabar, uh, where we're pretty much the biggest bond trader uh, or you know, buyer and seller of bonds, which are debt instruments um, in Australia uh, and one of the larger participants globally. So we're trading up to 100 times a day, $150 million a day. Since January last year, we've traded about $50 billion of bonds. Um, and we're hunting for mispricings, as we describe them, or cheap securities that are going to give us superior performance and particularly capital gains in the future. And I love doing what I do. I've got 27 full-time execs uh, in my team uh, across Sydney, Melbourne, and London. But, but the, um, the, the, I guess, catalyst for me establishing Coolabar was all around okay, I need to provide for my family. I need to secure my financial independence. And, um, you know, the, the being enmeshed or immersed in the uh, purely intellectual world and the policy debate is fine for a period of time, but at some point you have to make a living. Hmm, exactly right. Okay, well, so that sets the scene for... Um, many of the reasons why you look at the big issues that can drive markets. And, you know, I, I've known you for a long time. We often have debated reserve bank policy and I, I was always interested in terms of its impact on economic growth, you know, the survival and success of 
investors and small businesses and whatever. And you and I have often debated about policy. But one area where you quite surprised me last year was you had nearly what you'd have to call a fanatical commitment to working out what was the likely outcomes of the coronavirus. And you, you virtually set your team up, which you had hired not to monitor a, a pandemic, but to monitor financial markets. And you um, decided that you wanted to work out what was the likely outcome of the, of the virus and your prediction that you made ended up being pretty well right. Was it, was it easy, Chris, to actually use these people and the kind of statistical and quantitative um, confidence you've got to just change the, the focus from financial markets to the likelihood of the developments around a coronavirus? Yeah, so what actually happened was um, I don't think anyone predicted a global pandemic in December 2019. I don't know anyone on the face of the planet that was calling a pandemic, uh, you know, a couple of months before it emerged. And, and we, like everybody else, were in the dark. But I do have a pretty formidable internal research and uh, quantitative capability. So we have 10 internal quants, four PhDs, two university medalists, um, you know, four or five full-time data scientists. And I said to the team in January, listen, I want us to suck in all the infection, mortality data that we can get globally and build up systems to track the infections and mortality rates alive. And we built this, what we call COVID-19 laboratory that literally um, did track all that information live and gave us real-time uh, analytics on the evolution of the virus. And as we started getting more and more data, and the data, as you know, on COVID-19 has been pretty solid. Like there's been a lot of um, quite sophisticated data gathering on COVID-19. Um, it occurred to me that, well, why wouldn't we try and forecast the virus? Um, and so we built forecasting models in February for COVID-19 to basically uh, show us how the virus would spread um, and particularly when the first waves would peak and what the first waves would look, look like as um, you know, uh, communities uh, started to suppress the virus. Um, <clears throat> and in some cases, such as you know, in New Zealand or uh, parts of Australia or say Taiwan, potentially eradicate the virus. And um, those forecasting models were very, very important because they were only built on projecting those first waves. But what they did was they collected the data from China and South Korea, which were the real forerunners for the outbreaks. And they used that information to build up a, a visualization of what the trajectory of the virus would look like in Europe, the UK, US, and Australia. And the models were incredibly accurate. Um, so whilst the epidemiologists were telling us, like, you know, the first wave wouldn't peak for six months, our models were saying the first wave would actually peak um, in late March or early April, you know, mm -hmm. more or less a month or so after the outbreak had really kind of become more prevalent in some Western societies. And this was not what markets were thinking, but we thought that if markets saw that peak um, and uh, the infection rates start to uh, decline, uh, then that would be a source of great confidence. But we had to fuse together with that a very strong macro view. And we had a very contrarian view in late February. Uh, we were telling the RBA, I was telling the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, listen, you're going to need to do QE. You're going to need to buy assets. Uh, so the central banks buy bonds in order to bid up their prices and reduce their interest rates. And by reducing the interest rate that the Australian government pays, they actually reduce the interest rate that we all pay because all interest rates price at a margin 
to that benchmark or risk-free rate that the government pays. So by pushing down risk-free rates, they bid up the value of actually all asset classes and they help everybody um, and, and also reduce the cost of borrowing for all uh, uh, borrowers. And uh, so we had this kind of contrarian view in late February that, well, there's actually two different views. The first view was we thought there'd be a liquidity crisis. Uh, I was convinced that markets could not price a global pandemic. I wrote this in the AFR in late February, and I said that liquidity would vaporize and the central banks would have no point, sorry, no choice but to um, uh, create what we described in late February, and I think we were the first to describe this, um, uh, uh, to create a bridge between herd immunity and the uh, advent of effective vaccines uh, and all of the economic destabilisation and dislocation that would manifest um, between that time, uh, between you know, the advent of the pandemic and um, ultimately the uh, suppression of the virus through effective vaccines. We also had, a, I guess, a contrarian view that um, in March we said we'd get vaccines and we said they, they'd be effective and we argued that they'd be distributed by the end of 2020. They'd commence distribution, that is. Um, and that was an extremely unconventional view. I don't know really anyone who was as confident as we were. Uh, that was a pretty arsy call, to be totally frank. We did have one of the world's best uh, immunologists advising us. Um, but I, I ultimately was backing human ingenuity. I thought that, you know, the, you know, everyone said, oh, we've never created a vaccine for AIDS and we haven't created a vaccine for all these different diseases, you might recall the time. But mm -hmm. my view was that with the collective might of the uh, global medical community uh, coupled with the support, almost the unfettered and unconditional support of governments that we would find solutions. Um, and so what we saw was we got massive QE in March and that continued. So the central banks really stepped up to the plate. They were quite resistant. The RBA had no interest in doing QE in late February and early March. The uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, actually ruled out QE in early March after he cut rates 50 basis points. It was it was not sort of the fashionable view. Unfortunately, I think the uh, risk is that the virus might get ahead of the central bankers with this new Delta wave that we can talk about later. So we, we felt that actually um, there would be this wave of liquidity and fiscal support that would be very comforting for financial markets and that would uh, effectively force asset prices to normalise. And I spent about a billion dollars in the month of March 2020 buying assets. So a lot of people were selling in March. I bought a billion dollars worth of assets. Uh, and that drove um, quite outstanding returns over the next 12 months. Um, and it was really, I think, a combination of that uh, intellectual horsepower applied to thinking about the macro issues, but also thinking about the, the COVID-19 issues. Can I just say that uh, we've actually gone through a similar cycle more recently. Uh, we've been very hawkish, or I've been very hawkish for 10 years on the risks of war between China and the US. Um, and we have, I think, seven different China experts on our payroll advising us on these issues and about a year and a half ago, we gave a webinar to clients saying we thought that there was a new Cold War coming between China and the US. And this has really played out more or less verbatim. And um, we've been doing a lot of mathematical and statistical modelling, Peter, on the risk of war between China and the US. So we've taken hundreds of years of military conflict data and we've looked at the variables that drive conflicts. So military spending, you know, GDP, political and you know, economic power, projection capabilities and so on. And we've built models that, um, uh, that can forecast wars. And we're, we're actually going to release shortly what we call a war laboratory. So we had a COVID-19 laboratory. This time we're going to make it public. Uh, so we'll make the laboratory publicly available. And um, 
Yeah, that, that'll be. And what it, what it actually shows, the analysis is that the probability of, of conflict between China and the US um, has been rising significantly over time and is actually sitting statistically at about 50% right now. So there's a very, very high risk of war between China and the US, which has been our central thesis for quite some time. So I think that, that this is really what we call in the investment world edge. And what we mean by edge is kind of what it describes, which is a competitive advantage over our peers where we can bring to bear unique insights through, um, I think, uh, cutting-edge analysis. Yeah. And I know I say people listening to this who might not know your work, um, I have to say that um, I, I guess because of a number of years of seeing your work, I actually uh, chronicled you and your predictions over 2020 and um, use them in my own presentations and giving people advice on what I thought might happen. And uh, you were on the money. And as a consequence, people think I'm a lot smarter than I really am. Thanks, mate. Appreciate uh, that. We haven't even talked about housing. Yeah, no, but but part part of my my competitive advantage is to try and pick out the people who I think are actually telling a story that people should hear. And uh, you, you certainly were on the money. Over the years, we've had disagreements, but I thought you were spot on on 2020 i was totally with you um yeah and that's why i want to talk to you about your views on the delta strain as well one thing i will throw in um because i've been thinking as a, a person who not only studied economics but always enjoyed economic history at unsw and when you think about you know world war one was about the germans not not getting a fair slice of the imperial cake world war ii was the germans being excessively punished because of World War One, uh, And then you've got um, uh, other situations where, and of course, you also had Japan reacting to the, was it the Hortz-Smuley tariffs of the 1930s, uh, trade restrictions. And my concern is in, I'd love to kick China's butt for a number of things that China's done. But the last thing I really want is to um, get the world to punish China such that your suggestion of a war becomes more likely. Yeah, I think that's where we're heading, mate. I mean, we've seen China punished with quite hefty tariffs and China has systematically ostracised pretty much the entire developed global community. Mm -hmm. Um, And she shows, like President Xi shows no sign whatsoever of taking a backward step. Uh, There's no evidence of any error correction. He doesn't, you know, China under Xi does not want to become a good, you know, global corporate citizen. It doesn't want to buy into the Western liberal democratic business model. Um, they really want to impose social, socialism with Chinese characteristics on the rest of the world, um, wittingly or unwittingly. In the sense, I think the problem with with dictatorships, and you know, she's now a termless president. Uh, it's really a now a one-person political state. Is that um, they become paranoid about uh, perpetuating their power? So you might ask the question: well, Why are they paranoid? Well. Uh, as someone said to me relatively recently, there's no guarantee that if she ever retired, that his personal safety would be assured, right? His personal safety could be threatened. Um, and that's precisely apparently why he removed the term limits, because he couldn't retire. Um, and, and so you become very, very insecure about any threats to your power. And I think the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP, um, which is really now focused on um, perpetuating Xi's power is uh, absolutely paranoid about hunting out any potential or perceived threats to the CCP and Xi himself, and and that's why P 
people used to say, oh, China's not, China's not imperialistic. It's not looking to impose its will on the rest of the world. But yet you, what you see with China is nowadays it's constantly expanding outwards and it absolutely is seeking to impose its will on the rest of the world. And I think the reason the CCP constantly expands outwards or spirals outward, outwards in terms of its influence, reach and propaganda and espionage campaigns is that it's looking for threats. Anything that threatens the CCP is the interest of the CCP and the CCP reflexively seeks to cauterize that threat. Uh, and that's why you see, for example, unprecedented CCP espionage in Australia and in the US and for that matter in every country because they're looking for any potential threats to CCP power and influence. And they're also looking for uh, information assets, intellectual property uh, that can give them an edge in maintaining their competitive advantage uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the world. So, you know, I'm, I'm very worried about the current situation and I think, you know, uh, it is reminiscent of some of the previous historical cycles we've seen, mate. Yeah. Well, on, on that particular subject, I hope you're totally wrong, but, you know, I, I can see the irrelevance of it. Let's just cr- cut now to something that's really important to markets right now and you care about these sorts of things. This Delta strain and how it's being handled, you know, the optimistic view would be, okay, there's a a window of worry where the Delta strain takes a bit of a stranglehold because of low levels of vaccinations. But as vaccinations escalate, I hope towards Christmas, particularly in Australia, we might get on top of it, it becomes less of a threat. But what's your view, Chris, on the Delta strain and its potential to really rock financial markets? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think um, one thing we've done is quite a lot of modelling and forecasting on trying to figure out when we will reach herd immunity in Australia. So I can tackle this question in a slightly different fashion. So the first thing we ask ourselves is when can we fully vaccinate um, 91% of all adults, which would be sort of equivalent to herd immunity. Although we know with Delta, it's highly transmissible, more trans- transmissible apparently than COVID-19 uh, or the, the original you know, uh, variant of COVID-19. Yeah, much more transmissible uh, amongst adults, but also much more transmissible amongst children. Um, but just parking that aside, looking at the adult population, uh, on our mathematical modelling, what we did was we took the trajectories, the vaccination trajectories of 16 peer countries. Uh, obviously, Australia started with a the lag. There's been a lot of self-flagellation on Australia's you know, horrible you know, vaccination uh, trajectory, uh, as it's been described, or very poor you know, vaccination trajectory. But it's actually uh, the case, mate, that if you look at the most successful countries in the world that have um, you know, partially or wholly eradicated COVID-19 at various points in time, specifically if you look at Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea and Japan, we all have almost identical vaccination trajectories. All we're all sitting at like twenty to thirty percent of the adult population having had a first jab. We've all been very, very slow, and that's because we did a good job initially containing the virus. The one exception is Singapore. Um, but focusing on Australia, what we found is that there's a linear rate of growth in the vaccination trajectory between jabbing twenty percent of first ad- of adults with the first jab through to eighty percent of adults with the first jab. Once you hit 80%, what we saw in Israel and other countries is um, you get more vaccine, uh, we get saturation, more vaccine hesitancy, and the the numbers start or the growth rate starts to roll over and it's non-linear. So we built a model that accounted for that linear path between 20 and 80% of adults, uh, then accounted for the non-linear path between 80 and 90% of adults, and also the delay between the first and second jabs. On that that basis, what we uh, determined was Australia should be able to comfortably vaccinate 
90% or more of all adults by January or February next year. Now, that assumes we don't pick up our game. I think we will pick up our game. Um, and I think you'll see much uh, higher vaccination rates. So the first point I'd make is herd immunity is in, is in reach. We should, should be there within six or so months. Um, and uh, it will, though, be important to vaccinate children. Um, I believe that the government is looking at approving uh, the application of the Pfizer vaccine to kids uh, as young as 12, as they do in the US. Uh, and then they can roll that out through the school system. So I think um, ultimately the goal here is herd immunity, everyone being vaccinated and living with the virus. We're seeing this live in the UK. So in the UK, they have vaccinated about 90% of adults. And what they're seeing is they're getting a huge, whatever it is, third or fourth wave. So the daily number of infections in the UK are 40 to 50,000 people. But the hospitalisation rates are much lower than they've had previously. And the ICU rates are very, very low indeed. And that's, I think, where we're going to start to focus on. We're, not, we're going to move the crosshairs away from infection rates, uh, away from even hospitalisation rates, through to ICU and death rates. And the ICU and death rates in the UK are much, much lower and probably fairly palatable for the community to live with. So coming back to Delta, you know, we now have this, uh, this new period of uncertainty. I mean, I've been surprised by how transmissible it, it appears to be. Um, and I think worryingly, until we get to 91% of adults or thereabouts who are uh, fully vaccinated, which won't be till January or February, um, at the latest, maybe in you know, November or December at the earliest, um, until we get to that point, we are going to be um, subject to the spectre of rolling lockdowns. So I think for the economy and business, and whilst I'm, I'm very bullish on Aussie economic growth, once we get vaccinated, once we open up the borders, and once we return to some semblance of a new normal, I think between now and then we're seeing in New South Wales that they're really notwithstanding a tough lockdown, they are um, increasingly struggling to contain the virus. You know, we had, today we're recording this. Uh, what's the date today? I think the twenty first of July. Um, uh, you know, we've had one hundred and ten new cases. I think it was, and something like you know forty odd folks who have been roaming free in the community uh, whilst being infectious. So. I think the problem is even if we eradicate it again in New South Wales through the current lockdown, I think it's going to take many, many weeks. I could see New South Wales in lockdown um, through all of August into September. And, um, and then once we kind of feel like we've won the battle, the risk is we get new outbreaks. I mean, if, it, if we've seen that the virus invariably leaks out of quarantine, so unless we kind of shut up shop and completely close the country until we're fully vaccinated, I think we're going, to, um, we're going to find that we're going to have these rolling lockdowns, rightly or wrongly. There are some people who think we shouldn't have these lockdowns, but I think the outlook is actually a bit grim, mate, economically, just for the next um, six months. Okay, so as a consequence, what, what are you thinking the Reserve Bank's going to do? Well, it's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, I had a bit of an exchange with Phil Lowe this morning uh, on this subject. Um, I think that... The RBA, so, I mean, again, I'm not sure how sophisticated your audience is, but the RBA has obviously got its cash rate at 0.1%, and it was supporting the economy in many different ways. Um, one way it supported the economy is to say, well, listen, we don't think we're going to lift the cash rate till 2024, and that gives people a lot of confidence and stability that they're not going to be um, hit with, uh, you know, the you know, more punitive interest rate costs of, you know, hikes. Um Another thing they've done is they lent $200 billion to the banks and they lent that money at 0.1%. The banks have lent that money or are lending that money out, but they've stopped that. On the 30th of June, they stopped lending that cheap money to the banks. 
So what that means is mortgage rates will start creeping up because the banks have got to repay that money to the, to the RBA over the next three years, and they're going to replace that money with more expensive wholesale debt. So actually, they're kind of tapering there. They're, they're withdrawing their stimulus over time. So that's not going to help us, and there's no sign they're going to roll that back out. Um, the other thing they're doing is buying government bonds to keep those government bond interest rates low. And by doing that, they actually keep the Aussie dollar low. So the Aussie dollar's been down around 73 US cents um, in significant part because of what the RBA has done through these bond purchases, which are, which are called quantitative easing or QE. Um, now, the RBA did announce in July that it would launch a third round of quantitative easing or bond purchases once the current round expires in September. We expected that to be roughly $100 billion in size. It looked like uh, based on what they disclosed, it would be $100 billion in size, but they did announce something called a taper. Uh, and what that means is they proposed that the amount of money they'd spend each week buying government bonds would fall from $5 billion a week to $4 billion a week. Um, I didn't agree with that decision. I thought it was a bit bold uh, to roll the dice. Um, we were in the middle of a Sydney lockdown when they decided to commit to that taper starting in September. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. They did that on the basis of a forecast. Um, and they had at the same time said that they wouldn't forecast when setting monetary policy. They do what they call now casting. And they basically wait for the data to assure them that um, economic growth, inflation and wages, all the key uh, and the unemployment rate were all sort of in their target zones and were sustainably in those target zones. For me, Australia faces this tremendous uncertainty. We've now got the Delta variant rippling through the country. We're going to have the spectre of rolling lockdowns. We're then going to open up the borders, and that's going to bring with it new challenges. So we're going to get you know, waves of students and economic migrants, which will be deflationary for wages, um, and we'll, we'll open up the, the country to the virus, and we're going to have to adjust to that, that new way of life. Um, and I don't think the RBA should be tightening policy or tapering policy whilst we're dealing with all these challenges. Um, now, <clears throat> to the RBA's immense credit, they said this, this tapering would be flexible, so they could adjust it up or down depending on the data. Well, the data they've just been hit with. They announced the taper, tapering a few weeks ago, uh, and it looks like the tapering is being thrown out the window because suddenly New South Wales is in lockdown, Victoria's in lockdown, uh, you know, South Australia's in lockdown. It's quite, quite ridiculous. The entire economy has effectively been shut down. No retail in any of those states, construct, no construction in New South Wales. So we are now staring down the barrel of quite an extreme economic depression, albeit for a short period of time now, the, the, the optimists, and you know, you and I are both glass half full guys, uh, Peter. Mm. We're optimists, generally. We believe in the you know, uh, virility and ingenuity of the human condition. I don't know if those adjectives are necessarily appropriate, but... Yeah, <laughs> I'll run with that. I'll run with that. And, um, and I'm not normally grim, but, but I do think that this idea that you can start withdrawing stimulus whilst we're just on the cusp of and trying to obtain herd immunity, trying to deal with a rolling pandemic that's that's evolving over time and with you know, new, more potent versions of the virus. Uh, and just before you're about to open up the borders, um, I, I think that that's probably not the most prudent path. But the good news is the RBA, I think, are very responsive, very agile. They're not at all intellectually belligerent. And... Um, uh, and uh, I think you'll see them adjust policy quite expediently. Uh, and I'm hoping that they'll say, listen, it's probably not, not the right time to kind of withdraw that stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now they will say that the stock of bonds they own is the stimulus, not the, the, the month or so the weekly purchase pace. 
But the truth is that the weekly purchase pace is what determines the stock. So if you reduce the weekly purchase pace, by definition, you have a smaller stock than you would otherwise have. So uh, it's all a little bit circular at that point. Um, so I, I expect the RBA, um, I, I'm hoping the RBA, and I'm certainly encouraging the RBA, to really provide everything it can reasonably uh, supply in terms of support. Because right now, you know, I, I feel for the hundreds of thousands of households that are being absolutely hit for six. They don't have the income they were expecting to have. They're not working. They don't have the jobs. I mean, this is a very, very serious situation. And just because you said something a few weeks ago and potentially are worried about, um, you know, what it means to shift your position so quickly as the facts have changed, it's imperative that they do adapt quickly. I think they will. Whether they'll do enough, I'm not 100% sure. I, I think um, I agree with Bill Evans's comment that um, they should increase the, the pace of their bond purchases from $5 billion a week to $6 billion a week. I think that's possible. It's probably less likely, but, um, but I think it's possible. Okay, one last one, Chris, and we are running out of time, mate, but quickly, do you think uh, Josh Frydenberg has to revisit JobKeeper 3.0? Listen, I actually don't have a firm view on that. Uh, all I'll say is they should do whatever is necessary to bridge the economy between now and herd immunity. So whether that's JobKeeper 3.0 or some other solution, I'm not sure about the detail, but it's absolutely incumbent on the policymaker. This idea, I'm actually a little concerned um, that the RBA and others might just say, well, we've been through lockdowns, it's all good, we come out of them really quickly. But we went through a lockdown with JobKeeper. Right? We went through a lockdown with unprecedented fiscal support. We yeah. don't have that same support today. So it's a little bit callous to suggest that it'll all be okay when hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have you know, lost incomes and jobs, uh, and they should do whatever whatever is required. And and waiting, I think, to see how bad it gets is absolutely not the right policy response. Um, I think ScoMo and Josh are very focused on the task at hand. I think they're very, very focused on um, providing uh, agile, rapid support, and I think the RBA will hopefully do the same as well. Chris Joy, thanks for joining us on the program, mate. Thanks, Peter. Love being on the program. Thanks, buddy. And that was Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital. Thanks for joining us. If you want to improve your investment uh, performance, have a look at the Switzer Report. Switzerreport.com.au. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>